Support for this podcast and the following message come from Lagunitas Brewing Company, challenging the status quo and crafting stories along the way. Featuring a wide range of innovative craft brews and non-alcoholic options, it's good to have friends. Learn more at Lagunitas.com. To most of the people who opened it up, it looked like a normal Christmas letter. The traditional yearly inventory of trips taken, weddings attended, and blessed blessings counted. December 25th, 2016. We visited Pamplona, a small town in northern Spain, last October. There was nothing remarkable there except for their annual... So if you just read the words, as Charlotte had when her dad's letter first arrived, it was hard to find a note of darkness. Uh, We have both been in relatively good health and have been thus doing lots of running arounds. A totally normal, average Joe Christmas letter. Except for the hidden message Charlotte saw buried between the lines on the page. So what is not said in this letter? Well, there's nothing in the letter about me. Now, is there? I'm the only child. Uh, I have two kids who are the only grandchildren. And um, there's no mention of me in the letter. Um, And there hasn't been um, since probably about 2010. Wow. 2010. That was when Charlotte and her family suddenly dropped out of the annual Christmas letter. And in the beginning, Charlotte thought, maybe it was an oversight. But when she didn't show up the following year, and then again the year after that, she started to get a little paranoid and developed a theory. The 2010 date corresponds with um, a time when I uh, changed careers. I, My dad is a scientist, and I had actually trained as a scientist, and then... I worked in scientific editing, and then I subsequently left that career and decided to go back to school. Instead of being a high-status editor of a science journal, Charlotte chose to become a physician assistant. She liked it so much better. She now works in an intensive care unit, taking care of critically ill patients, and she feels like she's making a difference. But when it came to her dad, she began to notice a new avoidance, like how he didn't come and visit as much as he did before or the sudden blank space in the Christmas letter. You know, the word assistant in the job title was really, uh, it was kind of a deal breaker for him, I think. And and did he ever say directly to you, listen, Charlotte, I can't put you in the Christmas letter because... Oh, no, 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 no. So he never said, I'm disappointed in you? Oh, no. No, he he only kind of acted that way. Of course, it's not just Charlotte and her dad. Every conversation and interaction we have with our friends, our boss, our partner, our family sits on top of an incredibly complex psychological matrix, some of which gets articulated, but most of which is never spoken. We make inferences about others' thoughts and their beliefs and their attitudes and their feelings and their intentions and their emotions, every one of us. Hmm. This is a professor at the University of Chicago named Nick Epley. I called him recently because he's done a series of very entertaining studies which look at how good we are at discerning the intentions, thoughts, and emotions of the people around us, including a study he did which amounts to the double-blind science version of the newlywed game. Yeah. What Epley did was take people who were married, sometimes for decades, and ask them to guess their partner's responses to different questions. And what he found was that even though our ability to guess the partner's response is only slightly better than chance— We have huge confidence in our ability to guess right. Basically, all of us do, especially with the people we're closest to. And this, Epley says, can lead to problems in our relationships. 
I think the barrier to deeper understanding in a lot of our, our relationships is that we sort of believe that we understand this person already. And so we don't need to ask these questions. We don't need to talk deeper. We don't ask the things that sometimes we even ask of, of strangers. It's kind of tragic in a way. Because we assume that we know the people that we love most, we often miss important things about them. And that missing, it leads to larger missing, to misunderstandings and missed connections, a whole world of things that we don't want to happen that happen because we assume we don't need to check. This is Invisibilia. I'm Hannah Rosen. And I'm Elise Spiegel. And today, we have a story which looks at the surprising and dramatic things that can happen in a family when things are left unsaid. It involves a very complicated love triangle centering on a mother and trying to win her love. In this story, even huge central things are left unsaid. So naturally, there are misunderstandings which lead, in this case, to geopolitical intrigue but also a mystery. Here's producer Yoe Shaw. The first thing that went unsaid in this love story was, ironically, I love you. By all accounts, Frances Tao was not someone who expressed affection like that freely. She was a thin woman who wore hair in a tight bun and the kind of mom who played hard to get. I'm told she hardly smiled. And what about hugs? Well, according to her two sons. Not our family tradition. She's like a military sergeant, you know. I think she uh, took uh, training of children, like training soldiers. And uh, she always felt that the love of the mother is just natural. You don't have to show it to your children in order for them to feel it. Ching Chung and Peter Wong grew up in Taipei, Taiwan in the 1940s and 50s. And they still get a haunted look in the eyes, talking about their mom, Frances. She was born near the turn of the 20th century in an upper-class Chinese family. Feet partially bound, super-educated, well-versed in poetry, violin, calligraphy. And like every good leading lady, she was full of contradictions, which made her all the more endearing to her sons. Like she was obsessed with health, yet loved to smoke and drink. She took a daily shot of Chinese medicinal herbs, soaked in whiskey... But the one thing that did remain consistent was playing it cool, almost dicey with her children. Ching Chung, who goes by Cece, was in junior high when he found his mom kneeling in front of the cross at home and asked what she was doing. And she told him, I'm praying to confess my sins for not raising good sons. I was devastated. I was totally devastated for days. You know, I couldn't recover from this shock. There are lots of reactions you could have to this moment as a kid. Roll your eyes slam the door, decide to pierce your belly button. But Cece is a sensitive, sentimental soul. The few moments his mom ever softened stick in his head like a lifetime movie flashback, bathed in gold light. How she'd wipe his face gently with a damp washcloth and spoil him rotten when he got sick. Even bring him ice cream in bed. Yeah, I ate the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> All this to say, the hot and cold parenting strategy? Total success. Cece turned 81 last year, and for a lot of those years, he's worked extra hard to get an A with his mom, to win her love and approval. They didn't sit down and have a chat about it. He just assumed that obeying her would be the ticket. 
when Francis said study hard in school. I was always number one in the class. When she told him to move to the U.S., make the family proud, Cece got his Ph.D. at Berkeley and went on to make a discovery to help treat a disease called river blindness. He got married, started a family, wrote regular letters to his mom, and every month sent money home. I did uh, whatever she asked me to do. I think uh, that was uh, pretty much uh, what uh, a good son should be from her point of view. And for a long time, Cece felt like he was doing pretty all right, especially in comparison to his younger brother, Peter, who slacked off in grade school, chased girls, and abandoned a safe science career to become... A filmmaker. Yeah, I always, <laughs> I always try to be different. I took care of uh, everything. I was really responsible for everything. So, all good. Cece was winning, or anyway, doing as well as a child of Francis Tao could possibly do. And then, one day, a new competitor for his mom's affection showed up in his life. A very peculiar character, who ultimately became the central thing Cece and his mother did not talk about. Yes. Yes. To explain, we need to go back to the 1970s. Frances was all alone in her apartment in Taiwan. Her husband had just died, and her kids were in the U.S. as she wanted. So she had an extra room. Why not make some cash? She put an ad in the paper, looking for a tenant, and settled on a tall, middle-aged man who spoke with a rustic country twang. His name was Mr. Zhu. Well, Mr. Zhu uh, is uh, about my age, very flat face. Cece met Mr. Zhu on one of his trips back home to check on his mom. And Francis had no complaints about the new tenant. A bit uneducated, perhaps. But clean, polite, didn't drink. A bachelor with no family. I thought uh, it was very nice that they uh, get along very well. No one knew much about him, though. Where he worked, where he came from. He didn't say much. Come and go, nobody knew what he was doing. But as time wore on, Cece began to notice some weird things about Mr. Zhu. Things that didn't sit right. Like this middle-aged guy was doing all these things for his mom, even though he wasn't getting paid. Cooking and cleaning, running errands for the house. He was even hanging out with her going to the Mahjong games that Cece found tedious and boring. He seemed to be uh, very acquainted with all my mother's uh, friends and relatives. But never brought his own friends over. I was a little bit surprised by uh, how much he uh, blended in. To Cece, it was almost like Mr. Zhu was trying to belong in his family. But why didn't he have his own family? Why would he want to spend all his time with a serious old woman who... Remember, was not the easiest person to get along with. Except, suddenly, she was. Did she seem really relaxed around him? Yes. Like, how so? She would say anything uh, that uh, she has come to mind, and she has no guard at all. It was weird. Mr. Zhu wasn't just inserting himself into Francis's daily life. He also seemed to be really interested in any details about the family— like, every time Cece left the apartment, Zoo would ask him where he was going. And he knew about stuff Cece had told his mom in private. All the things we talked about uh, in the letters, all the telephone calls, he knew everything about us. And as the years went by, a strange thought began to crawl into Cece's mind. 
that this innocuous middle-aged busybody just might be a spy. I have a distinctive feeling that he was looking into my mother's uh, communications. Now, this might sound like a conspiracy theory, but actually, 1970s Taiwan, it wasn't as crazy as it sounds. Today, Taiwan is a democracy, but back then, it was an authoritarian regime under martial law. But on Formosa, renamed Taiwan, Chiang Kai-shek has escaped and set up a Republic of China government in opposition to the communists. There had been a long and bloody civil war in China, in which the ruling party of China lost to the communists and fled to Taiwan, where they set up a surveillance apparatus that looked a lot like the East German Stasi. There were many government agencies tasked with conducting surveillance to root out communist traitors and stop dissent. And the government also cultivated a wide network of informants, planted in all corners of society. Schools, workplaces, youth organizations, even universities in the U.S., If you know any Taiwanese people over the age of 60, try asking. See what they say. And really, bad things could happen to you if the government found dirt on you. An estimated 140,000 people were arrested or imprisoned, of which several thousand were executed for their real or perceived opposition to the government during martial law. Sisi remembers in the 50s, the government even accused some of his father's friends of being communist spies, and they disappeared. Your father's friends got executed? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was this general atmosphere of spying. But the real reason Cece suspected Mr. Zhu might be a spy had to do with his wayward younger brother, Peter. Yeah, I always, <laughs> I always try to be different. Years before, Peter, like Cece, had also moved to the U.S. for grad school. And while both brothers hated the authoritarian regime in Taiwan— Peter was a rebel, and less cautious than Cece. So, in 1971, when getting his Ph.D. at UPenn, Peter was offered a trip to China, communist China, a place Taiwanese citizens were forbidden to go to by their authoritarian government. He obviously accepted. His plan, if you could call it that, was to see this forbidden world without drawing any attention. But it did not work out that way. On the last day of the trip, after finishing a rich Peking duck dinner, his handler informed him that he was in the biggest Taiwanese newspaper, with the headline calling him a communist bandit cultural spy. I didn't speak because my jaw has been dropping off for about half an hour. I said, my God, what's going on? Even though Peter says he was not actually a spy, this meant it wasn't safe for him to go back to Taiwan and that there was now a cloud of suspicion over his mom, Frances, who still lived there. Of course, there's a danger to my parents. But shockingly, there were no immediate repercussions. The authorities stopped by to ask Frances some questions, but she wasn't carried away into a cold interrogation room. Maybe it would be all right. My mom just played ignorant. He said, I don't know, we never talked to each other. And then one afternoon on a visit a few years later... Mr. Zhu started boasting to Cece about how he'd worked for the Taiwan government as a young man during the Civil War. He said he'd assassinated communist agents on mainland China with a thin wire rope. Dozens of them. Did he actually show you how to do it? Well, he didn't have the rope. He said something like, somebody walking in front of you, you just uh, go 
like this. Cece holds up his fists and raises them over an invisible head. And pull it back and uh, then turn it around. Then uh, you just carry him all the way. It doesn't matter how much uh, the guy was struggling and just keep running for a while. And there you go. No, they would be dead. <clears throat> I start to become very alert. I didn't talk to him very worried. He was in the secret police. He has the job to uh, get to know everybody who are close to my mother, get some communists uh, out among them. What Cece does about the man with the rope after the break. Invisibilia will be back in a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor Acorn TV. Acorn TV isn't just good, it's brilliant. With exceptional television from around the world. Their romances are more charming, their mysteries cozier, their noirs more gripping, and their comedies cleverer. More clever? Oh, you get it. Acorn TV is brilliant stories told brilliantly. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. So, in a nutshell, Acorn TV. Brilliant. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. If you like Invisibilia, try another NPR podcast, Planet Money. It's a show about economics for people who don't think that they like shows about economics. It's fun and creative and smart with lots of vivid human stories. So try Planet Money on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Invisibilia. When we left off, Cece Wong is starting to suspect that Mr. Zhu, the middle-aged tenant living with his elderly mom in Taiwan, might actually be a hardcore murdering spy sent by the government to snoop on the family. Yowei picks up the story. After Mr. Zhu showed Cece the best way to murder a man with a rope, Cece felt trapped. If Mr. Zhu was indeed a spy sent by the government— He couldn't exactly report him to the government. And spies were everywhere. So he told almost no one, except his brother Peter. They decided the best way to keep their mom safe was for Cece to keep a close eye on Mr. Zhu every time he visited. You know, counter-spy. Here was the game plan. Do not engage in any more political activities. Do not reveal sensitive information in letters or phone calls to mom. Pretend to be a pro-government patriot in front of Mr. Zhu at all times. And of course, do not tell mom. Just another thing to add to the list of things left unsaid with their mother. For her safety. Oh, yeah. yeah. So on his next trip to Taiwan, Cece was on red alert. And when he walked into his mom's second-floor apartment, he was not at all prepared for what he found. How much more time was he spending with your mom, and what would they do together? Hours, 
because when、uh, he went out with my mom. To her friend's house,、uh, it would be a good half of the day until midnight. The scene was less scary spy movie and more odd couple rom com. The two of them even had a whole routine worked out. In the morning, Francis would read the paper, practice calligraphy at the table, while Mr. Zhu was in the kitchen cooking breakfast, and he knew what she liked. Something very spicy, very salty, and not very fatty. Then in the afternoon, after Mr. Zhu fixed lunch, he'd head out with Francis to her mahjong game and insist she put on a coat. He always tried to extend a hand. And before you get too many ideas about a Mrs. Robinson situation, Cici says it wasn't like that. Zhu was almost half her age, and Francis would set him up on dates like she would with the son. My mom had a good friend whose daughter is still not married and getting pretty、uh, up there. The date was a bust, but what was going on with this guy? Here was someone who said he'd murdered dozens of people, who was somehow able to connect with Cici's mom, say things directly to her in a way he never could. He would often correct my mom. Really? What、yes. do you mean?、Mm-hmm. Uh, he would say that、uh, my mom's、uh, memory、uh, may not be correct. Would you ever dare correct your mom?、Mm, no. It's very easy to antagonize her. I learned、uh, not to talk very much at all. But as much as Cici assumed he couldn't talk openly with his mom, Francis dished with Mister Zhu about all kinds of things: about her aristocratic family back in China, her grudges against the neighbor. Even the secret she was ashamed for anyone to know about. She's number two wife, the concubine. According to Cici and Peter, their dad lied to Francis when they got married, telling her he divorced his first wife for her, but apparently hadn't. It was the biggest humiliation of her life, and Cici couldn't believe that his mom had told Mister Zhu about it, and that Mister Zhu had the nerve to tell Cici, "Your father was a liar and a bad person." I, I thought that was very weird. I, I thought that for an outsider to make a comment on my parents' relationship was、um, very odd, and I, I wouldn't continue the conversation. Cici could not get away from it. The spark between Mister Zhu and his mom—it was everywhere, even late at night when the national anthem would blare on the TV set in the living room, and Francis would stand straight up at attention with her right hand in salute, and Mister Zhu would watch with tears in his eyes. That was, you know, very funny to us, but.、Uh, We wouldn't say anything, you know. <laughs> Did Mr. Zhu join her?、Uh, no, uh, he uh, just very deeply moved. As Cici watched the two of them do their thing, a bizarre new possibility seeped into his consciousness. Before, he was just worried about the tenant being a spy, but now he was also worried about being replaced. Do you feel like, in a sense, he like stepped into the role of son because you and Peter were far away? Yes, yes, it is. Was it a relief? Because look, it's like you're far away, and like great that there can be someone to be that person for your mom.、Or? It was a part relief, a part、uh, jealous. 
partly guilty. It's difficult to spell out. Which is why Cece finally snapped. A few years after Mr. Zhu moved in with Francis, Cece was like, no, 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 no. No more. I should be the one taking care of my mom, not some random guy with possibly sinister ulterior motives. Cece convinced his mom to live with him in suburban New Jersey, and it was the moment he'd been waiting for, a take two for their relationship. Were you excited about it? Like, yes. that this chance to, like, yes. finally connect? Yes. And can you talk a little bit about what your hopes were for living I with your mom? I was hoping that she would stay here forever and ever. But Frances didn't like the cold weather. She couldn't drive. Language was a problem. Cece was always busy with work. And besides, he thought they didn't have much to talk about. Or at least, nothing he was interested in. She wouldn't talk much at all. Only time when she has interest in talking is how to exercise. After holding out for a year, Francis told Cece it wasn't working out. She wanted to move back to Taiwan, and he couldn't stop her. She didn't have anywhere to live, though. She'd already sold her apartment. And so, who do you think she wrote to bail her out? Her old tenant, Mr. Zhu, who agreed to take an old woman he wasn't related to into his own house. Here's Peter. Well, Cece was not happy, was not very happy with that. He, he took it very personally, I think. In a way, we felt, we felt like losers. <laughs> Francis was thrilled. But for Cece, it was like getting punched twice in the gut. His mom had rejected him. And his mom had rejected him for a possible spy. So who was this Mr. Zhu that Cece's mom had left him for? And what were his true intentions? When Invisibilia comes back, Yoei investigates. This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because CarMax believes you shouldn't just settle for a car, you should love your car. That's why every car they sell has CarMax certified quality, so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. Don't settle. Find love at first drive. Start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Listening to the news can feel like a journey, but the 1A podcast guides you beyond the headlines and cuts through the noise. Listen to 1A, where we celebrate your freedom to listen by getting to the heart of the story together, only from NPR. What's unique about the human experience, and what do we all have in common? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on TED Radio Hour, we go on a journey through the big ideas, emotions, and discoveries that fill all of us with wonder. Find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. This is Invisibilia. When we left off, Cece Wong had finally convinced his mom to move to America. And then Francis, his mom, decided to go back to Taiwan and move in with Mr. Zhu. 
a man Cece suspected of being a spy. Yoe continues. Who was Mr. Zhu? And what was his whole thing with Francis really about? Francis died of lung cancer in 1985, and a little while ago, Cece heard through the grapevine that Mr. Zhu had passed away. There aren't many clues left. No pictures of him. Cece says he was a bachelor, had no family in Taiwan, and he can't remember Zhu's old address. He doesn't even know if Mr. Zhu was his real name. But here's what he does know. Cece says Zhu once told him that one of Peter's old basketball buddies at UPenn was reporting on him, and he knew the name of the guy. And he once told Cece he was going to opposition party rallies, recording video of demonstrators for the government. And then there was the afternoon. Mr. Zhu was out of the house, and the phone rang, and Cece picked up. The caller said, is this uh, station number 57? I said, no. I said, you got the wrong number. So uh, later, when uh, Mr. Zhu uh, came back, I told him, I said, there was something really funny. Somebody uh, called, asked if this is station 57. And uh, Mr. Zhu said, no, it's not funny. This is station 57. It's my number. But to find out the truth about Mr. Zhu and Francis, I needed more information. Hello? Can you speak uh, Chinese? Um, 我不会太... I tried calling Taiwan's intelligence agencies, tried government archives, tried submitting formal records requests. I even flew to Taiwan, looked for old neighbors who might have known Mr. Zhu. Shoot. Point is, nobody has information about the guy. Taiwan is still in the very early stages of releasing documents for martial law, and no one in the government would agree to an interview. But one of my last days in Taiwan, Peter happened to find an old letter with the address of Mr. Zhu's apartment. Bingo. Hello? Hi, can we, can we ask some questions? Is anyone home? My fixer Guangying Liu and I are standing outside a faded beige apartment building when a middle-aged woman with skeptical eyes opens the door. Meet Diana Sue, the very nice woman who lives here with her two sons and her husband, the nephew of Mr. Zhu. Mr. Zhu is a real person, and Zhu was his real name, though we're not saying his full name here to avoid potentially putting others at risk. He grew up in a rich family near Shanghai, was born out of wedlock, and he was a bachelor with no kids like Cece thought. But it turns out he did have family in Taiwan. And here's the weird thing. Mr. Zhu's family doesn't know him either, because he ignored them. Yeah, it's strange. He seemed to be a very lonely person. Uh, we were not very close. So uh, even when I got married to his nephew in 1986, he did not attend the wedding. I spoke with other relatives, and everyone said Mr. Zhu didn't talk about himself, didn't come around much. 
He died alone in his apartment, and they didn't find out until the neighbors began to smell something rotten after three days, and someone called with the news. Nobody knows anything about him being a spy. And when I tell them the story about Francis, they seem genuinely baffled. Say he wasn't the type to cook for other people, take care of others. It's like they've never seen that side of him and maybe wanted to. We live pretty close by, about 10 minutes away, but there was not a lot of interaction between us. Even when we are playing mahjong, he has never visited us. He has never visited his older brother. This picture of Mr. Zhu as an absentee family member is so different from the loudmouth busybody I heard about from Cece, the man who accompanied Francis to Mahjong every night, cooked and cleaned for her, hung hard with all their relatives. So what gives? Maybe Mr. Zhu had chosen Francis because he was trying to fill his own family-shaped hole. He left his mom behind in China during the war and for some reason never got close to his half-siblings in Taiwan. Maybe Francis was the mother he could be close to, just as he was the son she could actually let in. For Cece, the proof is in the vegetables. By the end, when Francis got really sick, Mr. Zhu would make sure to cut the tough stems off veggies, feed her only the leaves she liked. And when she grew too frail to walk up the stairs by herself... He would carry her up and down, up and down. And when she tried to get up at night to walk around, Mr. Zhu would scold her to get back in bed like the doctor said, grinning and bearing it when she'd snap, mind your own business, don't sneak up on me like that. I guess at a certain point he started to lose the distinction between the official duty and his own personal interest and feeling. It seems like he was better at like being a member of your family mm. than doing his job as a spy. Yeah, right. He's a terrible spy. <laughs> Again, I didn't find any direct evidence that Mr. Zhu was a spy. But Cece's still convinced. Especially since during these later years, Cece says Zhu finally opened up about his job and his backstory. Cece says Zhu had fled to Taiwan as a teenager after doing special ops against the communists during the war and never went back. He told me, he said, I never had a chance to show my love to my mother. I'm showing it to your mother. He was very sorry that uh, he left uh, home as a teenager and uh, he was never able to go back home. Oh, he was never, even after things relaxed between... No, he killed too many uh, communists, and uh, he was unable to do it. Mr. Zhu tended to Francis until she died in the hospital in 1985, and he was the one to see her last breath. He beat Cece there, too. They were finishing up dinner when the nurse barged in, all pale with the news. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Your mother is expiring. So I stood up, tried to run, and the Mr. Drew was faster. 
he ran ahead of me. I had to stay to pay for the bill. So when I got there, my mother already passed on, and I was <laughs> I was mentally broken down. C.C. doesn't think Mr. Zhu ever told his mom that he was a spy. And he doesn't think his mom ever found out. I didn't want to tell her because I don't want her feeling a little bit uh, strange uh, about her relationship with uh, Mr. Zhu. If you think about it, it's kind of beautiful. An instance of leaving something unsaid out of compassion... But maybe Cece was protecting himself from a more painful truth. That Francis knew that Mr. Zhu was a spy and still loved him like a son. I must say, uh, one word from Mr. Zhu really hurted me the most. Uh, he said, uh, you know, your mom told me that the happiest uh, 10 years uh, she ever had in her life was with me. What did you say back? Nothing. I felt really bad. I felt really, really, really uh, bad. I also felt guilty as being a son. You know, I really felt bad. um, Oh, well, I think there was some truth in that. How would you do it differently if you wanted to, like, get closer to her? I don't know how, how to do it differently. I really don't. If you ask me what I make of all this, on one level, it's simple. Even Cece admits that those years he was living in the U.S., Mr. Zoo was there for his mom, and he wasn't. And, of course, he's grateful. Like, he even carved Mr. Zhu's name on Francis's tombstone. But here's the thing I can't get over. Cece spent his whole life following the rules his mom laid out for him, including moving to the U.S. and making a life there. She never told him to move back, never told him what she needed, and it never occurred to him to check in. He thought he already knew. And... Even though this is a bizarre story about a spy replacing a son, that stuckness in Cece's voice, it feels so familiar to me. I've had that ache, wanting to get closer to people I love and banging my head against a blank email screen, not knowing what to do or say, how to crack the code. Really, so much goes unsaid in our relationships. And even if there are good reasons why, The things we don't say to each other lurk behind a foggy window. And we just have to guess at the shape of them. Which means we can make mistakes. Pass up opportunities. Every one of us. (coughs) Uh, I uh, must beg your... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I talked to Cece last summer, a week before he had surgery. There ended up being complications. And he died a few weeks later. Looking back on that time with him, 
I think he died feeling like he'd failed with his mom. He cried five separate times during our interview talking about her. But maybe there's another way to look at it. Maybe CC just misunderstood his relationship with his mom in the same way his daughter misunderstood her relationship with him. I'm the only child. I'm the only child. I own the grandchildren, okay? You would think he would at least mention us in his yearly Christmas letter. No mention at all. And did he ever say directly to you, listen, Charlotte, I can't put you in the Christmas letter because... No, 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 no. This, of course, is Cece's daughter, Charlotte Wong, the same woman we talked to at the top of the show. Now that her father's died, she's not obsessing over the Christmas letter anymore. But she's still working through issues, like whether he was deeply disappointed in her for not being a scientist. Mm, yeah. Okay, now I try to not touch her career, but, uh, but she always feels that I'm disappointed in her career. And uh, even I said nothing, tried not to uh, show it uh, or feel it. Uh, I, I think she always feel that way. That makes me uh, feel no way out, you know. What do you mean no way out? You know, I'm not saying anything, doing anything or expressing anything. Still, uh, she's suspecting that... Uh, very disappointed. That's a big uh, knot that uh, I cannot uh, solve. I loved her from day one. I never ceased loved her. You know, I respect her, and uh, I hope that um, on my uh, dying bed, I uh, hope that uh, my relationship with her is better. Mm. It does feel like a parallel situation. Cece, like Francis, was also not one to say I love you. Except for one major difference. I'm not saying my grandmother didn't love my father. I'm sure she did. But how well did my father get that message? I, I don't know. Um, you know, and of course, you know, my father uh, loved me and, and vice versa. And I, I got that message very clearly. And after our interview, right before he died, Cece did do something to make sure there could be no misinterpretation. Okay, uh, so here's the email he sent me. Uh, Dear Troren. That's the Chinese nickname Cece had for Charlotte. Yo Wei came here with all the equipment and interviewed me for seven hours today. It is funny that I did not feel tired after that. I think I need to be occupied in order not to be tired. She told me that you remember all the interesting incidents from the past. I was happily surprised. I love you, Troran. Hmm. Have you ever gotten an email like that before? No. I mean, maybe, maybe you know, when I maybe when I finally finished graduate school, maybe he sent me a similar email. But for him to send an email telling me that he loved me, I think that's the only one. It wasn't necessary, but it still felt nice to hear him say it. Producer Yoe Shaw. Hi. 
Hannah, is there anything that you want to say to me that you have not yet said to me about my gloriousness? <laughs> How cool I am? Uh, Come on. <sighs> Send a little love. <laughs> okay, moving on. I can see you got some things on your mind. Some issues that you haven't left behind. Listen to me. Just say it. Yo, I can see it's on the tip of your tongue. Why don't you just come out with it? I know you got the... That's it for today. Stick around for a sneak peek of next week's episode. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Grammarly. Change the way you write with Grammarly Go, offering personalized generative AI communication assistance. Grammarly Go helps you ideate, compose, rewrite, and reply thoughtfully. Go to Grammarly.com slash go. Next week on Invisibilia, if you look to Tara's past, her terrible childhood, the crimes she committed, there's no way you would predict where she went next. Somebody said, there is a guy named Sean Hopwood who you know, robbed five banks and is a lawyer. And I was like, wow, really? Do you think Tara will revert to her old patterns or not? I really did feel like my life was going to be good now. It was clear sailing? Yep, that's what I thought. <laughs> Invisibilia tags along with a group of scientists on their quest to predict the path of a human life. But is this true? That's next time. Invisibilia is hosted by me, Elise Spiegel. And me, Hannah Rosen. Our show is edited by Ann Gudenkoff. Our executive producer is Kara Tallow. Invisibilia is produced by Megan Kane, Yoe Shaw, and Abby Wendell. Our project manager is Liana Simstrom. Lulu Miller is a contributing editor. We had help from Alex Chang, Rebecca Ramirez, Jay Sizz, Mark Mehmet, Michael Ratner, Naomi Sharp, Greta Pittenger, Wanyu Zhang, Nancy Shute, and Meredith Rizzo. Nishan Tahia, Neva Grant, Michael May, Brent Bachman, Rob Byers, Bruce Oster, Ramtin Arablui, and Chris Benderev helped with the editing. Our technical director is Andy Huther, and our vice president of programming is Anya Grunman. A huge thank you to Cece and the entire Wong family, Peter, Charlotte, Alice, and Xu Jingma. And thank you to Guangin Liu for all her help with reporting and interpreting in Taiwan, Wei Shu Chong, Fanny Liu, Yuhan Shu, Chongling Huang, Lin Liu, and the office of Mei Chin Shao, Kathy Shaw and the whole gang of five, Nai Te Wu, David and Eric Lin, 
Hu Ping Ling, Sheena Greitens for her research on Taiwan surveillance apparatus under martial law, and so many, many other people we talked to for the story and who helped us try to track down information about Mr. Zhu and Taiwanese spies in general. Special thanks to Root Words for letting us use this song, Just Say It, to close out the show, Halloween Alaska for their song Gone with Wind, the band Peels for their song Trillium from their album Honey from Rough Trade Publishing, and to Blue Dot Sessions and Ramteen Arablui for other music in this episode. For more information about this music and to see original artwork by Sarah Wong for this episode, visit www.npr.org slash invisibilia. And now, for our moment of non-zen. The truth is, I never left you. It's like when you do theater outside of theater, it looks ridiculous. Lights, camera, action. Invisibilia. Lights, camera, action. And if you're still listening, thank you for listening because we have a favor to ask, which is we really actually want to know what you think about the show. So if you're listening in Apple Podcasts, please, please, please take a moment to leave us a review. It truly helps us because it helps other people find our show. Or if you are listening in a place that is not Apple Podcasts, tell a friend about us. Word of mouth is still our best tool for attracting new people. Thank you so much. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top 10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Ah, the satisfying sounds of more sales in your business. And from the sound of it, your business is growing. But you shouldn't have to pay more to scale your business. With Stamps.com, you can import orders from wherever you sell online, find the lowest rates with the fastest delivery times, and instantly deliver tracking updates to your customers and stock up on supplies. Get started at Stamps.com today with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.